Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby. We are thankful that you have joined us today. This is the work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We're located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. You can reach us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, That You May Grow Thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I'm one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. I'm Jacob Taylor, one of the evangelists. And I'm Ross Oldenkamp, also an evangelist. As we begin today, we're going to continue in our examination of the Gospel of Luke and this particular part of it. And we'll be looking at the discussion concerning the Sabbath and the coming kingdom in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. That's Luke 13, verses 10 through 21. And Ross, would you read that, please? Sure. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced, for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. You know what I think is really interesting about this? If I've got the chronology correct, and nobody knows the exact chronology of the life of Christ, but if I've got it correct to this point, this is the last time Jesus is pictured in the gospel accounts as teaching in the synagogues. And I'm inclined to believe that the hostility of the Pharisees was probably responsible for that. This event appears to have taken place somewhere in Judea. And that being the case, what courage Jesus displayed by being in the synagogue preaching in the first place. We know from John chapter 9 and verse 22 that the hierarchy of the Jews in Jerusalem had already issued an edict that if any man should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Obviously, that edict had to have been made to the rulers of the synagogues. Now, Jesus himself is in a synagogue, and there's a woman on the Sabbath day, obviously a Jewess, for she had access to the synagogue, and there she is present. For 18 years, 
And you know, I don't really, I don't, before Jesus says the 18 years, there's no indication that the woman told him. It's just simply that he knew. But anyhow, for 18 years, she had suffered from an affliction that rendered her unable to straighten up, and this infirmity was caused by a demon. She is said to have had a spirit of infirmity. While he was teaching, Jesus saw this woman. He called her to come to him, and without being requested to do so, Jesus laid his hands upon her and said, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. She was able to stand straight, perfectly released from her torment. This miracle was unsolicited. It was wrought immediately, and the result was her glorifying God. You know, Jesus likens his loosing of this woman to uh, to loosing an ox and uh, releasing it from the stall. It was just that easy. There was really no no work involved. What does it really say that Jesus did? He said, you know, be be unloosed or uh, be uh, be loosed from your infirmity, and he touched her. There's no real work going on here, uh, but I, I'm just appalled by the by the callousness of this man who uh, who must have been just infuriated by the fact that he that God even allowed him the power to work this miracle on this day. You know, he would have been just thrilled if he had observed Jesus attempting to do this and it had failed. And he would have said, well, it's because you're trying to do this on the Sabbath day. But to, to, to say, no, there's six days that you can do this, uh, but not on the Sabbath, just revealed that, that he had not taken a very close look at his own life and he could not see the hypocrisy that was right in front of him. The reaction of the, the woman here is something we can certainly share when we've been healed by God, certainly um, in, in answered prayers in a physical sense, um, but certainly also that he has healed us spiritually, and is, in return as our reaction is can be very similar to hers in glorifying God and giving him praise for the greatness that he's done for us and for this lady here. I'm also struck by it in verse 14, a lot of times when Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, we see them go after Jesus, and why are you doing this on the Sabbath? Here, the synagogue leader is going more so after the people. It's why, why are you coming here? To, there's six days to come and get well, um, not not the Sabbath day. So it's a more of so a different approach than we've seen before. Um, but still, it's a hypocritical attitude, as, as Ross was pointing out, that Jesus got on this um, synagogue leader for. You know, by calling this woman forward, if we can just picture ourselves being in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and it's full of people, and Jesus is there, and he calls this woman forward, and by doing so, he focuses focuses the attention of those gathered in the synagogue upon her, as well as putting pressure upon the ruler of the synagogue. Each synagogue had an individual who was its ruler. It was his duty to see to it that all things were done decently and in order. It is so interesting that this ruler sought to attack Jesus by attacking those who came to be healed on the Sabbath day, as you mentioned, Jacob. While there is no indication that this woman had come for that purpose, but that he was the approach he took, if the people did wrong by coming to be healed on the Sabbath day, then obviously Jesus did wrong by healing them on the Sabbath day. 
I love Jesus' response. It's very stern in his rebuke of the ruler and those who sympathized with him. Hypocrites. That's what Jesus called them. Very probably each one of them that very morning had led his ox or ass from its stall to be watered and did not consider themselves at all to be in violation of the Sabbath law. And yet here they are condemning Jesus for healing this woman on the Sabbath day. This whole exchange kind of brings to mind the Lord's teaching in Matthew chapter 12, 11, and 12. How did it ever get to the point where the leaders missed the mercy that undergirded the letter of the law? The Pharisees were leading the people into spiritual destitution by their man-made rules and their traditions. The people were like sheep that wander aimlessly about without a shepherd because their leaders were not properly leading them. In Jesus, the common people could rejoice. You know, notice that Jesus gives Satan uh, credit for having bound this woman. I don't think that we could say that in every instance that we see some deformity that Satan is has directly done that. But you, you can indirectly uh, trace every sickness, every deformity, everything that's wrong with this world back to Satan, who introduced sin into this world, tempting Adam and Eve to sin. I do think that there's a takeaway for us here, and that is, why do people often blame God for things in life that that have gone wrong? Uh, Why does Satan not get more of the blame, uh, when clearly we see that Satan was responsible for this woman's infirmity, and how unfair it would be to, to blame God when Satan is the one who's responsible? Yeah, I think too that I, th- I think it's just um, a, a lot of people. I think, and I'm sure Satan plays into this. Is well, God's in control, um, and so if God is this great one that's in control, then why is this happening to me? Um, as we know, and there's a there's a purpose to trials. Um, there's various scriptures. Um, James one comes to mind of of why, and so there's purpose to why we go things, and God makes us better for it. Um, and so, yeah, just continuing to examine the scriptures and, and seeing the examples that are laid out. Okay, let's turn now to the Gospel of John, John chapter 10. And when we arrive there, we'll look at the Feast of the Dedication, or the account of the Feast of the Dedication. And it begins in verse 22 and goes through verse 39. So that's the Feast of Dedication, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 39. I'll go ahead and read that. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounding him and said unto him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name... They bear witness of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. 
Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe in the works, that you may know and believe that my Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. You know, again, this is a matter of placing something in the chronology as best as we can find it. And that's why we're putting it here. Both Luke and John give material that is not included in Matthew and Mark. This additional material deals with the closing period of the Lord's ministry, the time between the close of the Galilean ministry after the feeding of the 5,000 and the final week in Jerusalem. You know, John mentions three different visits to Jerusalem in this time period. They are the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 and verse 2. They are the Feast of the Dedication in chapter, chapter 10 and verse 22. And they are the last Passover that Jesus participates in in John, in John chapter 12 and verse 1. Luke also mentions three times that Jesus went to Jerusalem during this time frame. Chapter 9 verse 51, chapter 13 verse 22, and chapter 17 verse 11. Luke was probably briefly noting the three visits to Jerusalem that John described in much greater detail. John focuses on the visits to Jerusalem and fills in some very important missing information. There is clearly a change in time indicated in John 10, 22-24 from the discussions recorded immediately before it. It seems that from the way Jerusalem is so clearly specified, as well as the time of the feast, and the season of the year that we are looking at a return of Jesus to Jerusalem after being away from the city since the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm struck by um, the, 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 the dearness and the care of our, of our Lord and Savior, our Good Shepherd, um, as talked about earlier in this chapter. Um, in Luke 12, verse 32, verses we read in, um, in our, in our uh, earlier episodes, called us, calls us his people the, the little flock. Um, and I think it's just an amazing thing of the dearness and relationship that he has for us and to give us eternal life that we won't perish and that no one and nothing is going to snatch us out of his hand um, and out of the, the Father's hand. And I think it's just a, an awesome reminder of how much he cares about us and that there is nothing that can take that can take us away from him. It's only ourselves and choosing to walk away from him. You know, they ask in verse 24, uh, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And my first thought is, I thought he'd done that already. Hmm. <laughs> Hasn't he been clear? Uh, back in back in John, uh, John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So I think his response is, look, I have told you. you know, I don't know why they're asking this. It's almost like they're stalling. I do remember back in John 9, they had the same tactic when they, basically after it's all been laid out, they said, all right, tell us again, how, how exactly did this happen? It's like, you're just stalling at this point. You just refuse to commit to believe in Jesus. And Jesus said, well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why you don't believe. You don't believe because you are not one of my sheep. You know, Paul referenced this kind of uh, argumentation in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, where it says that the reason that people do not receive the things of the Spirit is because they are spiritually discerned. And it is impossible for the natural man to receive the things of the Spirit. So basically says, well, there's a good reason why you don't believe in me, and it's not good for you. You know, just by way of information, we're talking about the Feast of Dedication. And we might ask ourselves, what was the Feast of Dedication? This was a feast held by the Jews for eight days, beginning on the 25th day of what is December. It commemorates the cleansing of the temple and the rededication of the altar by Judas Maccabees after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, king of Syria. I'm going to do something I don't normally do because I think it's interesting. I'm going to look at 1 Maccabees, which is one of the apocryphal books. 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verses 41 through 47, which tells us where this decree came from or where this feast eventually came from. It says, Antiochus now issued a decree that all nations in his empire should abandon their own customs and become one people. All the Gentiles and even many of the Israelites submitted to the decree. They adopted the official pagan religion, offered sacrifices to idols, and no longer observed the Sabbath. The king also sent messengers with a decree to Jerusalem and all the towns of Judea ordering the people to follow customs that were foreign to the country. He ordered them not to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, or wine offerings in the temple, and commanded them to treat Sabbath and festivals as ordinary work days. They were even ordered to defile the temple and the holy things in it. They were commanded to build pagan altars, animals, and temples and shrines to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals there. I want to go ahead to one more, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verses 54 through 59. On the fifteenth day of the month Kislev, in the year 145, King Antiochus set up the awful horror on the altar of the temple, and pagan altars were built in the towns throughout Judea. Pagan sacrifices were offered in front of houses and in the streets. Any books of the law which were found were torn up and burned, and anyone who was caught with a copy of the sacred books or who obeyed the law was put to death by order of the king. Month after month, these wicked men used their power against the Israelites caught in the towns. On the 25th of the month, these same evil men offered sacrifices on the pagan altar 
erected on the top of the altar in the temple. So you can see the Feast of Dedication. That's what this is commemorating, or at least it is commemorating the reason this the the feast let me explain this better I'm tied, my tongue's tying up here <laughs> the feast of dedication was to celebrate what is called today Hanukkah and they lit an oil lamp in the temple with only one day's worth of oil to burn the oil burned for eight days. That is the celebration of the Feast of Dedication, which is called Hanukkah now. Anybody? Yeah, um, to, to the later part of the, the verses, when Jesus tells them to examine his works, believe the works in verse 38, so you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am the Father. This is something that we saw a similar attitude that Nicodemus had in John 3 verse 2 where Nicodemus understood as he says Rabbi we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them there was understanding and Jesus talking about this says look what I have done look at the works and see see them and and understand that the father is in me and I am the father um, and again they the, the blindness there that they had um, something we can relate to at some point in our lives as well but just to look at his works and examine him for who he is it's an, an incredible statement jesus made in verse 30 when he said i and my father are one that's really in essence claiming deity and they recognized that as such and immediately accuse him of being blasphemous taking up stones in order that they might kill him might stone him to death and i think it's important that we recognize there are people today who say jesus never claimed to be god yes he did and the jews of his day understood at least the leaders of the jews understood that that's what he was saying when he said i and my father are one at least they got what they had asked for. Uh, they asked that he say it plainly, and uh, and he said it plainly. And you see their reaction. I think it's interesting that with the background you've given about the Feast of Dedication, which was to celebrate the, the rededication and the cleansing of the temple, that, uh, that Jesus himself uh, has come basically for the same purpose, only to show that it's not a physical temple any longer, but that his people would become the household of God, the temple of God. So he, he is, in essence, the greatest uh, uh, reality or fulfillment of, a, of, a, of the dedication celebration. They should have been celebrating him because he has come to establish his temple uh, in which he would walk and the glory would fill his people. And they've shown they want nothing of that temple. The Lord's answer to their charge of blasphemy because of their allegation that he was no more than a man is answered in two parts and continues through verse 36 from verse 34. His first answer is in verse 34. 
The law to which he alludes is set out in Psalm 82 and verse 6. Ordinarily, the term is used to refer to the law of Moses only. Occasionally, however, it's made to embrace the whole of the Old Testament. He called it your law, because it was from the law the Jews affected to draw their grounds for the charge of blasphemy. Jesus would show that the very law they professed to reverence did not support their view. In Psalm 82, verse 6, civil authorities because of their high position and official capacity, are referred to as gods, small g, in keeping with the concept that those who are God's representatives are gods, small g, again, persons of great dignity. Other instances of this usage will be seen in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, and Exodus chapter 4, and verse 16. The conclusion that the Lord drew of this is that in keeping with this rare but occasional usage in the law, he might properly call himself God's son without being blasphemous. If this concept was permissible for magistrates and other civil authorities, he, being greater than they, ought not to be so charged. If the scriptures use the word God, small g, in application to dignitaries and others of high office, it was not blasphemy for the term to be applied to him, since the scripture cannot be broken, set aside, or annulled at will. Moreover, Jesus had been sanctified by the Father and sent into the world on a divine mission, which certainly elevated him far above the magistrates called God's small g in the Old Testament and proved that his claim was not blasphemous as the Jews averred. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the points is, well, I didn't hear any objection, or certainly wouldn't have heard any objection if the word was used with reference to your leaders. You know, clearly God has exalted man. We're a little lower than the angels. And uh, when he calls them gods, they, they receive that uh, that very very thankfully or very uh, very willingly uh, so I think the argument is from the lesser to the greater uh, you know how much how much more so is he whom God has sanctified worthy of the title you're not you you know you don't object to it when applied to men but now when it's applied to someone far more worthy uh, all of a sudden now now you have a problem with it I think the point to be made too by Jesus was the fact that he could not have performed the miracles and the works that he did if he were not the Son of God. And he rested his case on their evidence. Though you believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. That's going to have to do it for this particular episode. Once again, we want to express our appreciation to each and every one of you who is listening. Tell your friends about that you may grow thereby. And until the next time, thanks for listening.